0: They can't just try the last violin I made or the last three and know that. I mean, it's a, a relationship they have to have. And it's a very personal relationship that string players have with their instrument. It's a really a very intimate thing. This is also where they project their love. I mean, we project our love while we're making it, but then they project their love in that when they play it. And it's a very personal thing. And um, so to have a, create an instrument with a person in that way, it's a collaboration. Where they have to get to know you.
1: Welcome to Rosin' the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family, and part two of my conversation with Venice-based violin maker Greg Alf. In part one, Greg told the story of how he became a violin maker and why he moved with his family from his home in Ann Arbor, Michigan to live and work full-time in Venice. Greg possesses a deep knowledge of everything related to the violin family of instruments, and he continuously surprised me with his unique insights into this fascinating world. And to get into the spirit, let's listen to the engine drone of the water bus known as the Vaporetto as Paul and I made our way to Greg's shop following the canals of Venice. Paul and I were just down in Florence, and we were interviewing the Vittori family uh, violin makers, and Sophia Vittori told us that she gives names to each violin that she makes. She names them after the bridges of Venice, and I was wondering if you do that, if you name your violins.
0: I did something like that when I was first starting um, violin making, in fact, I i made I always wrote a poem inside my violins and um, my earlier instruments. You'll you'll see these handwritten things in there. I actually write in all of my instruments, but before it was dedications, often to a girlfriend. (laughs) I think I did dedicate one to um, to Europe when the EU was forming and uh, to a. watermelon patch where we stole a watermelon one day so we dedicated to the count that whose patch we had rated and there were different reasons and but over time you know you, you make s- enough instruments that you run out of ideas for that kind of thing and uh, the, the idea in medals. I had a little um, medallion that went with the name of the instrument that I dedicated to and which would go sort of like a, a authenticity emblem or something like that but Over time, I stopped that. But I was going to share that, um, you know, the whole thing about Cremona, I have an allegiance to Cremona because that was where I was trained. But Cremona was not where the violin was born, per se. It was where Andrea Mati first, um, you know, codified a Cremonese system of violin making. And that was needed because the violin had spread to France and to places where know sets of instruments would be ordered at a time and they needed to develop a system for it so andrea Matti could be thought of as someone like henry ford and the automobile he devised a way of making you know a high quality and manufacturing an instrument i don't say that like a negative way at all because this codification hadn't really happened before or had been the violin before cremona you know there was there are roots to where the, how the violin evolved. And the violin evolved actually here in Venice and in, in Brescia and other northern Italian towns before even Cremona. And um, if you go back and think of the violin family instruments, what is the existential thing that makes a violin a violin And when it's developing? At what point would you say, like, human evolved, and this is a human and not a, an ape, <laughs> whatever, Um so that kind of standing upright on two feet for the violin world is the invention of the soundpost. When you had guitars or becks or rebobs or things like that that had, you know, different um, construction, internal acoustical constructions that it was approaching more and more the the, the the gums and thing. At some point someone thought of the idea of putting the you know, the soundpost under inside under one of the bridge feet. There was one where it was right in the middle at first and then as a structural thing but someone then it got moved over under one bridge foot and you had a bass bar under the others at bridge foot and something acoustical started happening a whole different instrument was created so that sound post is the essential thing that makes to me at least one of the things that's symbolized the beginning of the violin family instruments and italian the sound post is anima in french it's soul so they and it's only in english that we call it sound post but um for the inventors of the violin, this was the soul of the instrument. Anima means soul, in a, in Italian. And so for them, this uh, soul of the violin, the violin having a soul, is is a part of the. Was it's in the instrument from the time it was conceived. And the soundpost does have sort of a mystical thing about it. It's very important for the sound, and the slightest of adjustments of the soundpost change the sound. So it's
1: fitting to have that name. For an accomplished violinist, uh, who would you go to to adjust the soundpost? post? Uh, who has that skill?
0: Yes. In fact, um, with all humility, that's something I happen to be good at. And it would be very helpful for me if I could teach it. Because, you know, living here in Venice and I have a shop in Ann Arbor, instruments there, I mean, it would be very useful for me. And I, and I try, but it's, um, it's a... It's the thing where you can give the measurements and the technique, and you know. And I teach this in Cremona at the school there and whatnot. You know, so we have spec sheets about where things go and how to set things up. But when it comes down to the adjusting of it, it's um, an intuitive thing. You get a feeling for it. You have to be very, very methodical in a way. I mean, slight small adjustments, very carefully listening. It's um, if you don't, you're just going too far one way and then back the other way and back. It's like, I mean, some other things in violin making, like fitting a sound post patch or something. If you're not very precise, you know, and methodical and in approaching the, the the task, you can go too far one way, and just chasing holes around. And with the, finding the soundpost and really getting the the, um, the sound optimized, unless you're very careful and very intuitive and very um, sensitive as as you approach it, you'll end at a certain level of adjustment. You can't go beyond because you just chase one air to another, um, you know, air and you, you don't really get it better.
1: So Greg, uh, if you would talk about the sort of day-to-day reality of being a violin maker. I mean, how much time do you spend at the bench? What's involved in it?
0: Oh, well, one of the things that's I enjoy about violin making is that it's more than just sitting at a workbench. People often ask, how long does it take to make a violin? And I don't know how to answer that because it's, um, I guess you could take how many you make in 10 years and average it or something or even a year. But there are a lot more that goes to it than just um, uh, sitting at the workbench and, and carving a scroll like that. I think it's important to share um, your craft with colleagues. I'm oftentimes in school teaching, and it's a great time to tell young kids about why you need to know English or why you need to know math or why you need to know PowerPoint or something. Because even if you're a, uh, no matter what profession you may take, you'll be if you're good at it, you'll be teaching others about it. So that's a part of my job that takes time, and uh, varnish experiments takes time, and continuing education takes time, and one thing that takes time is the wood selection. And getting supplies and it can take a lot of time I mean it's, um, colleagues may complain about paying two or three hundred dollars or four hundred dollars for one violin back but if you look at the cost of going to a foreign capital or going to the mountains and hunting for wood and coming home empty-handed after a week or something or worse is coming home with a bunch of wood that once you get home you realized you'd made mistakes on um, you can see the price is kind of relative. And um, you know, my wood could come from, uh, the backwood can come from Bosnia and you know, Montenegro. I've been there many times myself to um, not in those cases to cut the trees down because they're, it's, uh, usually they'll, they'll be cut down in, in yards when, you've, when you go to get them. Though I've, I had one time when I was tipped off to a tree that was standing in, the, in Bosnia but I got all the way up there, it was a beautiful tree. It, I got great cello backs out of it. They're just the best wood I've ever had. But the downhill route out of the mountain in that case was through the other Bosnia, the um, the Muslim Bosnia, which would have been a non-go place to get back out with customs and whatnot. We just couldn't go downhill with the logs once we cut them down. So we had to split the wood there. You know, We didn't even have a chainsaw. We had to split the wood in the field I lost a lot of the yield that I could have had, and carry it uphill a bit before being able to go down back downhill to the to the truck. So you have experiences like that, and you learn the hard, you know, the scary way why they would invite you up there only in the winter because of a lot of the areas in there have landmines still, or the risk of you know setting things off if you're there when the ground is not frozen. You know, so they they go tromping around and exploring more when the ground is frozen things you don't think of but when you hear about it you know and the guys are tough in that area they've they've been through civil war recently and they're you you're working with people that you see wounds on them that you know is bullet you know gunshot and stuff it's they're tough guys um much more friendly and more enlightened i think as the the topwood and here we have the valley Femme area and uh which was traditionally where we we know that some or a lot of the the, the classical violin tops came, and with dendrochronology, we can learn more about how the wood was harvested or how it was maybe even sold, because we see the whole periods where the left and right side of the plates were not um, not matched, book matched like we often say they are, and we found um, or can find like half a violin top that is on one instrument is now, the other half is down in a violin made in in Bologna or something like that. I'm part owner of a Guarneri del Jesu. We did the dendro on it, and uh, and we see matching trees from that, from my Guarneri on the same tree, the, the correlation is so high, with uh, Peter of Venice, so del Gesù's brother. So you just imagine the stories of how this wood came down and from the mountains up there. And so to kind of, Follow that. I, I've, you know, in my making, I like to just, and it's again, feeding your soul with the whole basics of your craft, not just buying the wood on the shelf somewhere, but going right to the source. And I've actually been to the mountains, picked logs, cut them down, dragged them, you know, out of there, or it's even easier is to select logs because you can make big mistakes when you're just picking a tree. I remember picking a beautiful tree. It was like so silly, all these silly people that hadn't just got that beautiful perfect tree right beside the road why do you get these other ones you know so i want that one so right there so i bought it and uh, then we start to to mill it and it was like full of gravel so they blasted the you know road when they made the road blasted a rock into the side of the tree that's why the, the old timers knew not to cut that tree you couldn't do anything with it because it was no one would saw it for you. So you know, I've learned the hard way about these things. But we, um, you know, you can go there and get uh, with get a log, and it's a fun thing to do with colleagues. You know, haul it down to the wood yard and cut it into into meter long or two meter long chunks and split your violent backs out of it. And I learned the hard way one time with. Uh, some friends that were younger than me, it's a back-breaking job peeling the bark off a tree with younger guys, and it's like, you'll feel it the, the next day. But it gives you a real respect for the tree, for the wood, and for the, even the woodmasters that are preparing wood for us, because you can take a whole tree, a whole log, and 1,000 or 2,000 pieces of wood and come home with um, 50 tops or 30 tops, there's such a large, when you start seeing the, the discard, the second grade pieces or third grade, You know we, we want just the very best, perfect, perfect pieces. And when you only see it in the cellophane wrapper, per se, when you just see it the perfect pieces that are on the shelf like that, you don't see all the work that went in behind it. And you don't see the forest and you don't appreciate fully the majesty of that wood and what it means. And if you have a chance to go up to Val de Fim, you'll see that and feel it. It's like another world there, the trees. And the. it's unlike anything you can imagine. And they have um, a forestry program there, which is to bring people into the forest, to bring people into the, the Val de Fim in the woods there. And they'll um, allow uh, or encourage artists musicians to adopt a tree sort of program where you walk into the field with um with friends with with audience that knows they're going to a concert but it's not held in a concert hall or even a church it's held right up in the mountains and uh, the, the artist will walk around in in the forest and get a feeling atoning with the trees till they find one that seems to be their, their totem tree, their spirit, and and select that tree and um, and it'll be marked for them and uh, saved for them with a, with a plaque put on the tree. And then um, sit down there or stand there and play a concert in front of that tree right in the forest with everybody else sitting and appreciating. It's a very unique way to hear and perceive the connection between the living growing um, uh, entity you know in nature and the musical instrument that it eventually will become and for me it makes the the whole connection um, I love it it's a thing that um, I hardly recommend for string players and for violin makers both to go back and see that whole connection with uh, nature and where our instruments come from, where our inspiration comes from, and the sunlight
1: in the forest,
0: the light uh, filters down through the green leaves. It's like the, you know, like the light coming in through the stained glass window of a cathedral or something. Some of the little the valleys and um, the areas that are there is just just beautiful. The energy and the spirit there is
1: precious. Let's listen now to Marian Tanau with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, perform a portion of the Sonata for Violin and Piano by Paul Perret on a violin made by Greg Alf on a Guinari model. So, it takes a lot of time to make your violins and your violas and your cellos. Talk a little now about what it takes to sell them, to get them in the hands of musicians. Yes, well, um, yeah, it's a
0: good question because, um, of course, we do have to sell our work. And I think I've had a reputation for being pretty good with the marketing and whatnot. But um, that's, I think, only because I had good luck at it not because I was particularly skilled. Um, As a string player, before becoming a violin maker, I had the connections. And just by happening into the replicating stuff, because I was entrusted with great instruments, I was sponsored to do it, you know, so um, I've had good luck like that. But um, really, I think an artist has to do what they're driven to regardless of the result, a lot of great artists that are so valuable now lived a miserable existence. You know, it's you don't do things because it's commercial or because it pays. You do it because you believe in it, because you'd be miserable. Otherwise, you do what you see and what you feel inside, regardless. And if that means you have a simple life, then so be it. And if you really are authentic like that and you're showing who you are because of it, I think then you will succeed. You know, People will see some interest in your work. There's a poem that I love. is about um, a man who's lost his um, wife. I forget whether it's his wife or the wife who's lost the husband. But they go up to their mountain house, uh, summer vacation place, and, and with delight notice a shirt that's hanging on a nail there, from their their beloved part, departed spouse, and with great joy and anticipation, they pick this shirt up and they press it to their face to smell the the scent of their 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 loved one, and with great sadness realize that it had been freshly washed. It wasn't not a you know a used shirt. There's something about that that's touching to me because it's like. It's a kind of a weird poem, but I mean, it sort of shows me something about our work. We we have to be willing to show ourselves. We have to show who we are um, in our work and be real about it. People don't go to a racetrack to see uh, cars going carefully at fifteen miles an hour around the track, two inches from the guardrail without hitting it. They go there to see them going two hundred miles around the guardrail two inches and sometimes hitting it like that. It's they want to see skill and they want to see abandon in the work. The violins that are most sought after are are often the the more rustic or the more wild ones like that that show that kind of personality. And uh you don't get respect by being careful. You get you have to be who you are like that. And then it'll follow to that if you're doing something
1: that's valid. I like how you put that. I I agree with that. And uh but there's another question that you probably have to deal with and that's making your instruments affordable for certain musicians. Um what do you think about that?
0: Well, sure. Um where to begin? It's like um on the one hand, the violins are a very expensive i mean it's of the whole string orchestra probably the most expensive instrument in the orchestra except perhaps a grand piano if they've got one on the stage but um so it is a, a time consuming it's a the traditional violin is a, an expensive instrument to make and yet if you're working with even a, any kind of professional level string player they have the they'll have the money to, to, to support it I mean, even a taxi cab driver, you know, will have to pay the the medallion on their cab is thirty thousand a year, plus the cost of the car, and then the and the, um, and the depreciation of the a, a car, and you know, so a violin is uh, only a part of that, and, and it goes up in value each year. So the professional players will have the money. It's more of a, a challenge on our part to make an instrument that would conserve them, you know, to make it. Um, to do whatever it takes to make an instrument that will meet their needs that's the challenge and you don't have to make it expensive to pour more money into it it doesn't need a golden uh, tailpiece or diamonds in the scroll to do that it's it it might need more of an investment in material in a very fine um, tone wood or something that's probably makes sense and i think that Violin makers in general have a responsibility to their, their sponsors, to their string players, to, to mitigate the cost, to keep the costs down as possible. I mean, for that reason, it is justified to have a, a secretary or justified to have to look at the, the elements of running your violin making business in, in a way that makes it as affordable as possible, like that. There's nothing wrong with that. And there's a misconception, I think, of the violin maker being the lone wolf out there that, um, you know, like a mad uh, artist or something that had no school or apprentices behind them. And and in reality, the traditional shops like Stradivari's and Guarneri's like that was a whole team of workers working together, making a product, you know, was an intentional thing. But um, so even though the professional players uh, are you know, able to spend, you know, to afford, to support our craft. I think they see part of the the product they're getting, actually the, the belonging to contemporary art. It's sort of like um, commissioning a, um, a violin concert or a, a piece of art. They enjoy that relationship with the living arts today. And, um, you know, I've had um, instruments sponsored by foundations. I just delivered a viola to the Royal Academy of Music in London. Uh, And the Meister Foundation has an instrument, the Mati Foundation, I have instruments that are um, sponsored by institutions for the use of players. But um, I think the most satisfying commissions that I have are for players. And um, it's more than the paradigm of looking at something I've made and then... Uh, judging whether it's for them or not, sort of the, where the violin itself is on, on trial, a trial consignment, a trial instrument, you know, like that. I think it's more the relationship that they, I want people to try out. I want them to get to know me, get to my work, and I want to feel a connection with that string player. And um, when we quell with each other like that, then I'm able to really do my best work with them and um, the way i explain it is like if you go to a great tailor to have a suit made for you i mean a really top tailor you don't go to them because they're going to use expensive cloth and sew accurately straight lines like that you go for the style you go because they're going to make you look fabulous that's what you want when you go to a name Taylor like that. They're going to see you and see the beauty in you, no matter who you are, and make you come out looking great. And that's my job when I'm working with a with a concert artist or with a, a you know an orchestra musician, whoever. Is to see the potential, and see how they play, and help them sound great, and help them come out sounding great. And that's something that they can't just try the last violin I made or the last three and know that. I mean, it's a relationship they have to have. And it's a very personal relationship that string players have with their instrument. It's a really very intimate thing. This is also where they project their love. I mean, we project our love while we're making it, but then they project their love in that when they play it. And it's a very personal thing. And um, so to have create an instrument with a person in that way, it's a collaboration where they have to get to know you. And there have been times in my life where I had worked more on commission, where I'd have years of back orders and like that. I just don't feel that that serves the process. It's not dignified to the process, really. It's, first of all, a sign of bad biz- business, because if you were marketing, if you had a five-year waiting list, you should change your price a little bit. But um, it also doesn't serve the string player to have to wait five years for their instrument. And um, it's not really the way... Um, like a great chef, you know, wouldn't have five years worth of hamburgers on the line, you know, orders to make some, put something together. You would be working on creating new and original things and leading more. And as a violin maker, if I had five years, every time I made something before it would be getting, I'd be you know, told five years ahead of time what I was going to do. It's not the ultimate expression of, of a being a uh, creative person. So I, I find it much more exciting to have um, relationships with people that are into my work and and into what I'm doing and I get to know them and a feeling for them and it occurs to me, a piece of wood that I have and a, a model and an idea and I build something for them. And so it's more the trial is the trial, the relationship and getting to know each other. Once they're comfortable with that, then you can create something for them. A violinist needs to have a commitment to their instrument. It's a relationship that they have with it. And you could never, you know, get married if you're keeping a back door to the relationship. You need to have a commitment to the relationship. And, that, you know, you can't just to commit to a relationship that was, that was um, poorly chosen. You need to really look and think carefully before you make a commitment. But then you need to make a commitment and try to make it work out. And that's the process that goes on between um, a violin maker and a, and a violin, violinist when you're creating an instrument for them. Even though the violin will serve five or 10 generations more of of people after we're long gone, the original creation of that instrument comes out of a relationship between two people. And that is, to me, the
1: most exciting part about it. So talk about the politics of violin making, uh, dealing in violins. You know a lot about this world. I've heard stories about people selling violins saying they were made in Italy but in fact, they were really made in China and sent as white violins to Italy, and then finished here, and then sold. Uh, so, you know, tell me, kind of the good, bad, and the ugly. Yeah, that's certainly
0: a can of worms that's uh, that exists. You know, doesn't affect me, but um, it's the argument I think for working um, in, for making your work as the highest level as you can. If you are. Um, in the media if you're going to be a mediocre maker you're going to be competing with the best factories and it gets to be a race to the bottom and there are makers of course that have um you know not endeavored to do their best to to make their their business model that of making a the, the best instrument you could and they suffer because a lot the a lot of the lower end ones are getting better and better and so but, um, you know, my um experience was a little bit different. I graduated from Cremona and um, soon became um, made a reputation for making replicas of, of old ones. So I would get an original Stradivari in and uh, copy it, and sometimes it would need a base bar or some kind of you know, so I'd have a chance to really study it well or set up or whatnot. and um so I'd make even some replicas of it. so I'd really sort of continued my education by studying as closely, uh, closest thing I could to be studying with the Stradivari himself would be to study his work. And um, so I got to be more and more familiar with the, and the, the original classic instruments, Guarneri's and Stradivari and Guarneri mainly were the instruments we would replicate. Gaspar's solo is a viola. Um, but um, as you enter into that world of handling the antique instruments, the really precious, priceless ones, it's sort of like going to the other extreme from the other end of the spectrum from violin making. You have the brand new modern instruments and the greatest, the old classic instruments. They're the two ends of the spectrum. And there are a lot of politics with the old instruments and uh, eventually became, you know, just from that world. Um, a chance to sell some of the old ones when the owners would um when it had time to sell their instrument they thinking who they would want to handle it i had handled their violin before when i was replicating it they trusted me I had a relationship with them i was their violin maker so um the handling and sort of dealing of instruments is a, like a completely different world There are subspecialties of violin making that are different than violin making the making of violins itself and that would be like repairing a violins or the selling the the dealing of old violins and then even expertise about the origins of old violins those are different different skill sets and um there's certainly different politics that go especially when you have more value more money involved than more
1: politics involved is there one incident you could tell us about uh, where you learned a lesson or you saw something the way this whole system works? Um, I know that's difficult because you know these people and maybe don't want to use names, but uh, what could you tell us?
0: Hey, let me see. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, and a lot of discretion is involved And in, you know, I mean, I think that... Um, you know the, the extent that I'm—I've been successful in the in the world. I mean, I have an open door with most shops and dealers, and like that, they I have friendships with them. And I'm the American delegate for the Entente. The, so it's like I think related to discretion about you know what you would share. But um, uh, I, I could share a time. I would just impress the stakes that are involved and how it is between colleagues like that. I remember sitting at a convention one time with one of my colleagues and I know that they just had a shootout between, you know, without, uh, not not a, one but they went up against each other offering strats to one buyer. So they had both offered instruments like that. And one had prevailed over the other by alerting customs um, in New York or wherever the guy was coming in, his colleague was coming in with a, instrument that this uh, someone was arriving with a with a rare violin at the coming through customs at this time and it was stopped the guy was stopped and so um, he wasn't able to be at the showing of this uh, at the playoff like that between the two instruments so the other guy won and um, just about the time when I'd heard that story and sort of not a complaining but you know like that' I was sitting there in the bar, and and I saw this other dealer coming in. He was arriving, also at the convention. I I should say I, you know, I didn't get up and leave, but I was prepared to like step back from the table quickly if some, you know, fists were flying or something. But it was not that way at all. They came and they approached, they shook hands, congratulated, like well done, good match, and I realized that wow, this is heavy hitting when you involve millions of dollars in sale. Oh, this is a tough game and um, you have to be able to take the heat or get out of the kitchen and some of these things and there are a lot of sort of amateur dealers or players that want to deal and they don't know how to handle it and they don't know this the ethics or the this the the formulas because we don't work with um, contracts you know when you're talking about millions of dollars there's no legal contract that would really protect anything You, you have to trust somebody on a handshake well enough to know and know that they have the discretion and honesty and you can work together your colleagues you work together like that that's the foundation of it all it's probably like some other businesses you know that are that work the diamonds or whatever um that work that way and um so the written word is really to help remember help everyone remember what the deal was like that not to hold anyone to it that's just the honor of it all and um you know it's It's a world all of its own, you know, once you
1: get into that. We were talking earlier and I had asked you whether sometimes you carve the scroll into a figure of some sort and you mentioned uh, having carved E.T. from the movie, the science fiction movie. Can you tell me that story?
0: Okay, I mean, it's not so much to be said. You know, when I was living in Cremona, um, I've always sort of been a, you know, Free spirit. I had a chance to do whatever I wanted, and one summer it was the idea of making an ET scroll on a viola. ET had just come out as the movie, and um, I had made a viola d'amore with a with a scroll with a, on it, a, a girl's head on it, like that. Actually, that was with the help of a sculptor in town, and um, the idea was. I had this idea to make an ET on the head, so I made a viola with the ET on the, on the scroll, and the the you know the the hair or whatever the part of the turtle, the, the shape of this extraterrestrial was around the pegs, and it was a lot of fun. And um, the first owner loved it, but you know violins pass on from you know they live lo- longer than we do, and the one owner goes to the next, and the second owner didn't really like it so much, and um, it was eventually shown around and made its way to California, and uh, the owners of the copyright <laughs> for E.T. were not amused to have had that and it was a violation of copyright. And uh, I was just suggested, nothing really bad happened, but it was suggested that I could just make a new scroll for the violin and for the viola, and I did. And so the E.T. head hangs now In my studio back in Ann Arbor, and uh, someday I hope that um, I may get a commission to put that et on another viola. It's all there waiting, but uh, for the time being, it sort of was sort of cooling down period. I think to just get it off of there and you know let it be.
1: Talk a little, if you can, Greg, about the difference between being a custom violin maker, which is what you are, an independent and and uh and violins being made in factories and kind of what's the interplay between those two different worlds
0: right well i think it's important for modern violin makers to know what they're up against in the, in the world today and it was uh, a little bit different 30 years ago or 40 years ago now almost i can't believe so much time has gone by when i started but um a replica or a copy violin was very sought after. That was a good marketing thing to do, to do a, a copy of an old violin. But that is changing a lot, and it's changing because the factories are getting a lot better at doing that kind of copy stuff. And that is in turn being affected by the changing techniques of science and the, the things that are available to violin manufacturers that wasn't available before. So a lot more information out there about what a... A, an original old instrument is. Uh, when I first started making violins, even knowing the outlines of an instrument or the shapes of an f-hole was wasn't like a trade secret, but it was hard to get. Even you couldn't just get a book, or you couldn't. You'd have to have the real instruments un, under underhand, and that was not easy. So um, today, there's a lot more exchange of information that's out there. We have programs like at Oberlin where we've um, studied together and there's a real spirit of openness, of sharing uh, our secrets, of sharing our techniques with each other. And um, the, this information is available to everybody in the world. And science um, provides us with like CAT scanning of instruments where you have you know, the, all the dimensional information that's accurate to a wavelength of light. And that, that NC data can be transformed into... The, the the digital data can be transferred into numeric controlled things to run routers, and you can make the shapes, all the three dimensional shapes of a violin, can be reproduced very precisely and milled into pieces of wood. And um, in a factory setting, like in China, where you have, um, and, and not just China, but where you have um, low cost but highly skilled labor, they're no longer just creating, you know, instruments at a low cost but really assembling machine made ones at a low cost and uh and some of the the uh, skill level is not so low at all because you can see workers that were there's a high level of um, a selection process a large um a large um group a body of um of trade of potential workers that are selected from schools for their natural abilities in the in the arts or in woodworking selection Tests that are given to find candidates for the specialized schools. You can have, you know, hundreds of uh, thousands of people tested, um, selected, and screened for participation in a school. And then from them, the best um, you know, three thousand can be selected for um, for, um, for three hundred positions in a in a university. And of those, three hundred graduate. And by the time you get to a um, a factory that's set up somewhere. They're, they're very high level workers. And you go and see them working, you're shocked by this the technical skill they have. They may not even know what the part they're making fits, how it fits into the finished instrument. They've just been doing that thing, and they get very good at it. And um, you then you talk with them. I've had a chance, you know, as a judge in China and, you know, traveling there. To, to speak with um, workers in that position through a translator. But, I mean, you'll be surprised, like, you know, it'll just come out. Well, you know, I've been making this part for 20 years. It's not that it's just been overnight. It's th- th- They've been making the instruments, in a very specialized, high-skilled person doing it repeatedly for a long period of time. So they get very good at what they're doing, and they're getting better and better information. So it's an old paradigm and you know we can't sort of just follow that thing that used to work at one point and you know at Oberlin we had a, that experience of replicating the um the Bets Stradivari with with that kind of it was the, the concept had been if we take all the mechanical parts just the three-dimensional parts out of the way so we could you know five different makers can make um a violin starting with the same foundation of the same wood pieces like that everything that remains would be the personality it'd be the the character there's other things that we normally don't think of because we can get lost just thinking that a great violin is sharp corners accurate points things that now could be done by a machine so if it's not that what is what is it where the spirit and the real skill comes through and in fact you can take um and ma- uh, five parts and put them together by five different makers. And the parts were all exactly alike, and you'll have five different instruments that come out at the end. So it's like the the personality of the maker is transmitted even past this, the simple three-dimensional part into the small decisions that you make along the way as you work. And it has to be because if it was only that um, the bass three-dimensional parts, the things that they're doing now by machine and by assembly, you know, like that, our field would be gone. There'd be nothing more. And of course, there is a lot more. And that is the thing that string players love when they see an old instrument. They love to pick it up and to look at it and to hold it because something else is being communicated. And so I'm very happy that we could study and have that experience with the Bets, and we're doing it now with the Guarneri in the next years. But because I think and hopefully it will get us beyond that point where we're studying so much, the little intricacies of, of, of the old violin makers of the past, which are important from an expertise point of view for identifying and authenticating an original old violin. But to get lost in it too much would be like painters getting lost in the, uh, authentication techniques of a Rembrandt or certain painters like that and trying to just getting stuck in that in their own work. Um, Instead of really going off on their own, taking more risks and being, you know, well well schooled, but then being more creative in their own way. I did a program like 10 years ago called the Amiata Summit. And we, it was in Tuscany, and we got eight great violin makers together, the best in the world that, that I could, you know, find for this type of meeting. Eight good string players together, concert artists, concert masters, great teachers, and a team of eight, um, a creative team we called it, so an industrial design expert, a marketing expert, a historian, so eight people to support us. And we had two weeks together. It was all paid for by grants that I got together with a, with a partner that helped me. And uh, we discussed the future of violin making from this point of view and you know, where could we go from here. And um, all of us came up with a, the realization that it was like the future really was to be to put the personality forth to to put our hearts into the work and um you know let the factories sort of take on that the copying and the replica stuff that was so successful 20 years earlier you know when joseph Curtin and i was doing it and we weren't hardly the first ones or even the best ones i think in history but it's not a paradigm that works now
1: i don't think I guess one good thing about factory-made violins is that uh, you can have really good instruments available now to beginning players. Uh, they're affordable, and, and they really have good tone. Absolutely. I mean, it's, we have
0: to be uh, realistic. I mean, we have to offer um, the best product we can make at the best price, and um even though um, I think it's also wise to invest more in an instrument if it gives a better quality or more um, you know, noble pro- final product, but um, you know when you talk about beginning players, they need a better instrument. There is something very good about the commercial instruments and the quality, the increased in quality that's taking place because the violin is a hard instrument to learn how to play, and if you are fighting a poorly made instrument on top of it you'll lose interest and go take up the trumpet or something you know like that so i think it's very important to have very high quality um you know, beginning school instruments that are set up and adjusted very carefully so the players from the very beginning get used to playing a sensitive instrument in a sensitive way and they're not put off by the, the poor sound and like you know like that and um in a, a commercial setting where you have a lot of instruments that are like made in series it is a good place to do science, to do to slowly learn what works and what doesn't work and upgrade the quality of that the product. And we're in a dead competition with those those factories for the best wood now. I mean they're willing to invest um, the same thing we were investing before on a piece of wood. And if the price has to go up a few hundred dollars because they paid a few hundred more, um, they can do that. So a violin that costs Eighty dollars before now will cost three hundred and eighty, but it's up against a handmade instrument that costs ten thousand. So there's there's a, there's plenty of room for them to increase the price as long as it increases the quality. And I'm sure that there's plenty of room for modern the top modern makers also to um, you know increase their quality even if it increases the price because string players are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars for even second tier antique instruments. And the first tier antique instruments are not really even available um, from a budgetary point of view for, for, for anything anyone but the very top soloists.
1: How much would a professional violinist with an orchestra, let's say, uh, be paying for a violin from a modern maker?
0: No, I think the highest prices, the top prices for the 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 you know, the, the, lead, the leading maker is, uh, are, sixty-five, seventy-five, eighty-five thousand dollars for for you know. There's very few makers that get that, but that's the kind of the top range. And um, I would say below, if you see a violin that's being sold for below, you know, ten thousand or eight thousand, like that, certainly six thousand. You, you can be sure that it's probably made in a more of a commercial setting and um, you know that's not to put it down at all because you'll have um, a, maybe a very a very learned dealer a very learned uh, expert um, with taking a, um, a handmade violin a, a great a great concert violin over to study and in using it to, to make a model there's uh, A model that's repeated and upgraded over time as they make it and they have differentiation of workers where the best scroll makers the best f-hole carvers the best you know of each particular trap work together in series on an instrument and you come up with dream team type instruments that um, should not be you know dismissed at all it's a great way to give value but it's doesn't have um, the investment value or the the artistic integrity of a handmade instrument you know made by i wouldn't say a maker but a shop if you think of this scuola of a of a certain like Raphael or any painters of the time it wasn't just one person per se but it was a an outlook a philosophy of work and the more skilled the master was the more um i mean less important it may have been about who did what parts of it but more the theory of the school the the product that was you know coming out and from the from the global perspective of that output of that shop so there's something um, really important by uh, about per, that kind of making that way of making uh, a work of art or that way of making even a violin that you don't see when the personality of the individual person the human value is taken away and it's sort of a commercial product on its own. But um they're both there. And you know, that I would say somewhere, you know, six to eight thousand is the sort of a murky area where there could go could be either way. And the probably the center of the market, I would say, for good, good professional made instruments is twenty-five to thirty five thousand dollars for the most, you know, um serious violin makers that make their living making violins you know, rather than sort of dealing them or something, but the violin makers
1: like that, yeah. After we finished our interview with Greg, we went down to a cafe and had a cup of coffee with him. And as we sat there talking and people walking by, he told this great story. And uh, I took out my recorder and my microphone and asked him if he'd just tell it again right there.
0: I made my first violin with a man named Willis Galt in Washington, D.C., And I remember when I had first began my instrument with him, we were out walking one time in this Washington D.C. and he stopped dead in his tracks in front of a show window looking in at an antique shop and in this plate glass window there was a violin resting that had been cut in half right down the middle and the two halves separated and uh, filled with potting soil and turned into a planter for some flowers and he was outraged and he went in to talk to the owner and just telling him that you can't do this this is just a, a, an insult uh, horrible that, that this how could you you know and, and the um, the guy sent him away and said you want to buy the violin or not and buy buy the planter or not and he left just fuming and some weeks thinking you know what he could do about this and and uh, in the end, he went back to the shop and went shopping again without saying who he was, bought a beautiful kitchen table made of curly maple. It was a valuable Chippendale kind of thing I don't remember the make, but came back home and made a violin out of it, or several, I think he got more than one violin out of it and took one of those instruments back to this antique shop and said, here, look at this, you know, and the guy was very complimentary, whatever, like that, how nice is it? And you know where this came from? This is that antique table that I bought from you and of course it didn't make any financial sense for him to do it but he made a point you know that uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah it was like his the ultimate revenge to cut up a antique table and make a violin out of it. and I remember him saying that so the violin you cut up is now returned to the world from the table that I've cut up
1: Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project, to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, RosintheBow.org. And let's finish with a quote now from Friedrich Nietzsche about Venice. At the bridge I stood lately in the brown night. From afar came a song. As a golden drop, it welled over the quivering surface. Gondolas, lights, and music. Drunken, it swam out into the twilight. My soul, a stringed instrument, sang to itself, invisibly touched. A secret gondola song quivering with iridescent happiness. Did anyone listen to it?